Welcome to the Integrated Schools Podcast. I'm Andrew, a white dad from Denver. And I'm Courtney, a white mom from Los Angeles. This is Gentrification and School Segregation. We're back to our usual podcast format. The Between We and They series that we just finished up was important to do and definitely has gotten a lot of traction, but we're also happy to share these more casual conversations with parents and thought leaders. So today we are going to be tackling gentrification with Dr. Kafir Mordecai. We know that different topics in different formats are likely to reach different people and different points in their own journeys. So we're going to keep trying many things here. Yes. And one of the things we're trying is Patreon. So if you aren't familiar, Patreon is a platform that allows you to support this podcast while also engaging more directly with other listeners and with us. So if you haven't checked it out, patreon.com slash integrated schools, any amount you can contribute would help us continue to produce this podcast for free and keep us from having to sell you stuff in the middle of our episodes. Yeah, we'd much rather focus on school integration than selling you underwear. Although, yes. I mean, but anyway, to, to everyone who has already signed up, thank you, thank you. And we will be scheduling our first Patreon Zoom meeting happy hour soon. Yes. In addition to new ways to engage with you, your support on Patreon will also allow us to upgrade some of our technology. And I think today's episode really highlights that need. Quite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so our free recording software had some technical difficulties, and Dr. Mordecai and I couldn't hear anything that Andrew was saying during this interview, so you will not hear Andrew in this episode at all, and you will have to suffer through my voice, and I am so, so, so sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) It is a great conversation. I wish I could have been a part of it, but uh, it's definitely one that we've also been we've been meaning to do for a while, and uh, I would say I'm still feeling a bit nervous about doing. Yeah. Gentrification is kind of complicated, and I know that I don't know nearly enough about any of it. For sure. But what we do know is that it's happening all across the country, right? Most every city has at least pockets of gentrification. Maybe someplace it's the whole city. But one way or the other, whiter and wealthier families are moving into urban areas. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I worry a lot about with our work at Integrated Schools is that we are contributing to gentrification, right? Like Hmm. by changing the ways we talk about schools, are we somehow, you know, effectively supporting displacement of families? I mean, I don't, you know, I'm I'm not trying to exaggerate our impact here or anything, (laughs) But, right. I mean, if we if we were simply encouraging people to consider schools that whiter privileged parents previously thought of as quote bad, in what way does that make them more likely to move into gentrifying neighborhoods, right? Yeah. And, and then drive up home and rent prices and displace families of color. In what ways is our impact problematic? Yeah. And, you know, maybe I find my way to getting to sleep because this does actually keep me up at night worrying about the impact, right? But, I I, I mean, I I think gentrification is happening anyway. Uh, Courtney, I think that's called rationalization. (laughs) You're mean. (laughs) You're probably right. Yeah. I don't know. But here's the thing. So we're in a moment now that we've never seen, at least in our lifetimes, right? Like we're thinking about race and white supremacy culture as a nation in ways that white people are finally participating in. We're starting to challenge some of the intensive parenting narratives, and we'll talk about that in our next episode. And we are actually living in more diverse neighborhoods. So, you know, if we can't figure out how to make school integration work now— What hope do we have? Yeah, I guess two things. One, I think this is definitely a historic opportunity. And two, you know, with everything we talk about it, like it's, it was never going to be easy. Yeah. Right. We're talking about power. We're talking about privilege. We're talking about race. We're talking about class. We're talking about things that we don't have uh, any track record of 
talking about in really helpful ways or, or working on in helpful ways. And three, okay, I guess three things. If we are living in more diverse gender-fine communities, like we, we have to think about the responsibilities we have when we get there. You know, how we show up matters. Yeah, yeah. What does it mean to be a good neighbor? Exactly. So let's listen to the conversation with Dr. Mordecai. Dear Mordecai, I am an assistant professor at Pepperdine University, where I teach courses in public policy and quantitative research methods. And I'm also a researcher at the Civil Rights Project at UCLA, a think tank that looks at opportunity structure basically in metropolitan areas across the United States. Thank you so much for being here. I think to start, maybe it would be good if we got a little definition of gentrification. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, in the academic world, there are many technical definitions. Like if you were going to give it that label, there's definitely no consensus on what that is. But broadly speaking, if you just look at neighborhoods that were at one point segregated, mostly by race and class, also by language, these are neighborhoods that transition and see basically large increases Um, mainly in the white demographic, but also in the demographic that has higher rates of educational attainment. And these are also areas that tend to see increases in rents and in the value of the local housing stock. That's sort of the conventional way of how researchers have tended to look at gentrification. Of course, some focus more on class-based elements of neighborhood change, um, while others focus on more racial elements of neighborhood change. Although, of course, race and class in, in American society tend to be two highly correlated variables. Yeah, what I think is so interesting about your research is that you're looking at kind of the confluence of gentrification and school segregation. Yeah, well, it just seemed like one of those pieces that not a lot of people were uh, talking about. If you look at the urban sociology literature, it was really framed as this idea of like, you know, there is this suburbanization of white folks in the post-World War II era and our central cities as a result of this and as a result of discriminatory housing policies and restrictive covenants, et cetera, et cetera remain heavily segregated. And as a result, um, our schools also remained heavily segregated. But just spending time in different cities, I started to notice uh, that, you know, if you go online, for example, and look at the interesting neighborhoods to explore, a lot of them tended to be located, you know, in these areas that traditionally had uh, more dangerous or stay away from reputations. These neighborhoods are changing. Obviously, people are drawn to these neighborhoods. But the question is, what happens upon the arrival of children when these sort of young gentrifiers get to that age where they're, you know, either having families or considering to have families? And I also started to think about how much cities have changed really since the 1990s just in terms of the safety of cities. If you look at the the popular press, and even if you look at the quantitative research on homicides in in central cities that um, in many places peaked in the 1990s, we started to see pretty drastic declines at that point. 
So there's been a shift in perception and cultural pressures, and like it used to be unthinkable to imagine a white and or wealthy person would live in the city, and now yeah. you know hipsters are poo-pooing the suburbs, and cities are cool again. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have a sense of why that happened? Like what drove that cultural shift? You know, I think a lot of things had to come in place for that to happen. Um, I think the Great Recession likely had something to do with it, like a suburban housing slump. I think the new geography of jobs that we've really seen emerge in the last 20 years, where a lot of these high-tech professional jobs tend to be concentrated in coastal, larger metropolitan areas like New York, San Francisco, LA, Chicago. I think the third piece might have something to do with declining crime, like a young person that is making a decision to sort of live in these areas. It's not like there's a lot of risk that is saliently at least associated with living in these areas, like there might have been in the past. And I think the other piece obviously has to do with municipal investments in a lot of central cities. You know, places like New York City made conscious decisions to revitalize and to invest billions of dollars and to let private equity go into these neighborhoods where there previously weren't a lot of financial resources in. So I think all of these combined created these spaces. Um, And then, of course, you know, these things become self-perpetuating and they build on one another, right? So when where, where the jobs go, people tend to go, especially if people are not necessarily interested in, in long commutes, they're interested in walkability, right? Like all these things have happened around the last decade and a half or two, I think, to create a sort of perfect storm for increases in gentrification, which we see across many, many of our uh, central city neighborhoods and even some of our smaller cities. So this cultural shift is like the backdrop to what is really the crux of your research, right? Yeah. What is that impact that gentrification has on schools and school segregation? Can you kind of describe your project? Yeah. So what we did in Washington, D.C. and in New York is we first identified um, the neighborhoods that were fastest gentrifying um, since 2000. So we looked at 2000 and we compared neighborhoods in the year 2000 to neighborhoods in the year 2015 or 2016. And then we tried to identify those that were most rapidly gentrifying between these two time points. And then at that point, we wanted to look at the changes at the school level, both the traditional public schools located in proximity to these neighborhoods and the local charter schools located in proximity to these neighborhoods and to see if the demographic changes that are happening at the neighborhood level are corresponding to those happening at the school level. So what we did was we looked at school enrollment trends in these neighborhoods. And what we did find was that school segregation, especially racial segregation, has declined slightly in these neighborhoods and that enrollments, uh, particularly amongst whites, has increased in these schools. Yet the increases does not mirror the increase that we see happening at the neighborhood level. Our neighborhoods are desegregating and our schools are as well. And it's like, you know, going much faster at the neighborhood level and you're not seeing it as quickly in the, in the schools. Mm-hmm. But I guess this is sort of making me think about what an ideal student population could look like. Because I think that's super hard to pin down. So Los Angeles has 11% white students. Mm -hmm. 
So with a school, if a school had 35% white kids, is that, you know, a pushback to, you know, to segregation or is that just a concentration of privilege in Los Angeles? I mean, in an ideal scenario, I think you have schools being reflected in the the demographics of their neighborhood. And obviously, there's many different ways to parse that, right? Do you just look at the general demographic? Do you just look at the young people in the neighborhood? What is it that you're looking at? Obviously, in places like LA, um, where the predominant demographic overwhelmingly is Latino, you know, how does that look? Maybe there are other characteristics that you might have to consider when you desegregate. But yeah, that number of what actually constitutes a diverse school or what's an overrepresentation of, let's just say, gentrifier children or white children is, uh, I mean, that's, that's a question that not many people have really looked at or have been able to put their finger on in terms of like, what is that appropriate number? Right. And it also depends a lot on how you define your community boundaries, right? right? Yeah, exactly. If we're talking all of Los Angeles, are we talking about the state of California or just one little neighborhood or one high school feeder pattern? Right, right, exactly. And it's obvious also that neighborhoods don't perfectly correspond to school boundaries as well. Um, And obviously you have choice schools like charter schools, which also take kids outside of local catchment areas. So that further complicates it as well. But certainly those things can be used as uh, tools to further diversify as well, though. Can we talk a little bit about the fact that gentrification is, is really a bad word? Yeah. Right. And treated as a bad word. Mm -hmm. And there's good reason for that. Mm -hmm. It's certainly um, in a lot of circles seen as a bad word. And I think the Mm -hmm. biggest narrative around why it's bad is that you have neighborhoods historically that have been predominantly black or a mixture of black and brown. And then you start to see an influx of people that don't look like that, of residents and households that don't look like that. Um, And as a result of that, there are enormous housing pressures and housing burdens that ensue in that neighborhood that is gentrifying. And because of that, displacement is caused. So people that, let's just say, had a more stable housing arrangement now have more unstable housing arrangement because they can no longer afford to live in that neighborhood. So you have neighborhoods that were close to 100% black and brown, and all of a sudden you see that percentage decreasing. And you see the percentage of mostly white people and some Asians increasing in that neighborhood. So it's seen as this sort of colonial project. You know, if you take the sort of extreme end of the anti-gentrification argument where white people come into these neighborhoods and they displace these more vulnerable families of color. So that is kind of the backdrop for the negative uh, perception of gentrification. And you have pushback to that. Yeah, I do have pushback to that. You know, one of the issues, um, if you just look at a neighborhood that at one point was uh, segregated, predominantly black and brown, is that you don't necessarily see in the demographic data the residential turnover that tends to happen and the unstable housing arrangements that tend to exist within these neighborhoods. Because what tends to happen in 
poor and segregated communities is that a poor family will have unstable housing arrangements and they might have to leave the neighborhood and then they are sort of replaced with another poor family, right? So that difference is not as salient as a poor family being replaced by a maybe more privileged family. Okay, so you're saying that the research shows that housing turnover and displacement is actually equally likely regardless of whether the neighborhood is gentrifying. Yeah. So one of the issues um, when people look at neighborhood turnover and turnovers and demographics is they they don't really think about the counterfactual. Um, That family that was displaced by gentrification or that family that had to leave as a result of gentrification, what would have happened to that family had there not been gentrification. And what we do know in general is that in poor segregated communities, there tends to be very unstable housing arrangements to begin with. So a lot of the research, the more robust work, um, there was actually a really interesting uh, piece that was just published by the Philadelphia Federal Reserve and a scholar at the University of Chicago, and also Ellen Ingrid at NYU has done a lot of work on this. But what they suggest is that the displacement that happens as a result of gentrification is no more likely pretty much than the displacement that happens um, in neighborhoods that are poor but not gentrifying. Like the housing turnover and displacement is happening in communities with high concentrations of poverty no matter what? Yes. So displacement is a feature of concentrated poverty then and not gentrification. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it's just more salient when the transition happens in a neighborhood where you have a black family, let's just say, for example, leaving their household and then you have a white family entering in into that, that housing stock. Yeah, we just notice the displacement more when a white family with more wealth moves in then, right? Yeah. So then is there any societal value in kind of pushing back on these concentrations of poverty? Like, is gentrification something that could help with that? Yeah, so just looking at the outcomes of children and families and households um, of neighborhoods that have heavy concentrations of, of poverty, there's pretty much a consensus in urban sociology and economics that it's associated with a plethora of social and health and economic ills. If there's some way to alleviate this isolation, then it's a good thing. And I think gentrification offers at least a possibility of doing that. But of course, left to its own devices, um, it can also be a destructive force as well. And not to say everything about a segregated neighborhood is bad. I mean, I, that's certainly not the argument. I, I think I'm worried here or I fear that you're sort of giving a free pass to white and privileged people, right? Like gentrification happens, you know, don't feel bad about that. Don't feel bad about the impact that you're moving into a neighborhood is having. Yeah. Um, Well, that's just more focused on the demographic piece. We know that, especially when you look at some of the qualitative work on um, the social dynamics that happens in these neighborhoods, we know that obviously they're far from, from ideal. A lot of the amenities that result as a result of gentrification tend to not trickle down to Mm -hmm. residents that were there before. Derek Hydra has written a lot about this, um, looking at places like Washington, D.C., where you see 
stores that had been there for decades closing down. And then you have the creation of a third wave coffee shop that obviously only one segment of the demographic in the neighborhood tends to have access to or can actually afford. So I I definitely wouldn't say gentrification is like this utopian scenario where you have people from different backgrounds um, living together as neighbors and becoming uh, best friends and sharing social spaces. <laughs> That's certainly uh, not not what we see happening. Right. The the corner market gets shut down for a acai bowl. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I think so. The question is, do you just take a reflexively critical stance and say, okay, well, gentrification is a really bad thing? Or do you take a stance of saying, well, look, um, gentrification on the one hand is solving one problem, which has really concerned policymakers for well over half a century, right? The problem of residential and neighborhood segregation. Is it just left to its own devices going to fix everything? Absolutely not. It's probably going to cause other problems as well that we have to think about ways to deal with and solve, um, which is why I think going back to the schooling piece, the schooling pieces is really critical here because it's my opinion that schools tend to be the anchors of community. And until you have schools being integrated in these communities that um, at least in, in, in some contexts, are showing some sort of residential integration. Until that happens, then, you know, it's going to be like sort of a pass-through diversity or a social wallpaper diversity where gentrifiers are going to boast to their friends that they live in this really cool, hip neighborhood that's diverse. And how is it that you don't live in one of these neighborhoods yet? You see the actions that they take with, with their children, oftentimes opting out of really investing in that neighborhood, then that's, that obviously creates a lot of problems and is not ideal. You know, I think we can talk a little bit about the, the word diversity here mm-hmm. too, right? Mm-hmm. Like I appreciated you saying social wallpaper diversity. <laughs> and I want, I want you to explain that just a little bit more because I think it's fantastic. Yeah, well, you know, this notion of social wallpaper diversity comes from um, this whole idea of liberal parents Mm -hmm. sort of like virtue signaling to their friends that they engage in diverse activities, that their kid perhaps goes to a diverse school. They'll virtue signal by oftentimes, and I saw this um, quite a lot in my qualitative work in New York, where they'll post on their social media things like a picture of their kid in line at the school in Brooklyn, and there's like the black kids in front of him, and you know, like a couple of white kids in there, and a couple of Latino kids, and they'll post that on social media and say things like, oh, like this is what diversity looks like, and they get all these likes from their friends. But yet, when you pay close enough attention, to how they actually navigate these contexts, it doesn't really seem to have a lot of weight behind it. Um, And I think this goes back to like the challenges of being a part of a diverse school in a gentrifying context or really in any context, but that comes with uh, responsibility. And part of that responsibility is having conversations that might be uncomfortable because a lot of this happens in spite of good intentions. You know, I spoke with a lot of these parents. They're nice people. They're genuinely interested in diversity. They weren't coerced into sending their kids into the school. 
they wanted to because diversity is something that they thought would be a value that that benefits their child. Right. Yeah. I mean, as if diversity is something that, you know, like one consumes or gets as if it's not Mm -hmm. something you have to work within or learn to become a part of, Mm -hmm. like it's a benefit to you rather than a way of being. Yeah, that's frequently what we see happening um, in these situations. And one of the challenges with gentrification is that the inequality that you're going to find in the school between the children of different families is going to be very stark. Like when I was in New York doing some of this research, um, one of the social workers at a school that I was working in was basically telling me, uh, you know, it's hard when you have kids that go to the Hamptons on the weekends and then you have other kids that live in, in either the public housing projects or even a local homeless shelter. Like creating social mixing within that environment is going to take effort and it is going to require a lot of conversations. Right. And, and ones that lots of us aren't well-equipped to have. Yeah, right. right? <laughs> Including exactly. some of us principals or staff. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the leadership piece here is obviously a, a big one. But I'm thinking a lot about what it means to to be a good neighbor, like mm-hmm. as, as a gentrifier in a community. Yeah. I think there's certainly a lot of um, overlap with schools when it comes to this question, right? You go into these neighborhoods, it's not about you imposing your worldview or your values onto these neighborhoods, right? It's about a coming together of different values into these neighborhoods. And that's what makes them, I think, so compelling um, and so interesting to a lot of people. And when you talk to uh, long-term residents, um, and I did this in D.C., that's one of the things that they will frequently tell you. They're like, I don't like the fact that these new neighbors, these new white people moved in, and now they're telling us to like turn down our music all the time at the local barbershop that has been there for 30 or 40 years. Like, why are you calling the police and telling him to come and to turn it down? This has been an institution of the neighborhood. Right. So again, like it comes with that sort of um, responsibility. And I think just schools, in a sense, mirror that. Because uh, when you go into the school, again, it's not about you bringing in what you necessarily think or know is best for the school, right? But it's kind of a space where people are going to bring their own cultural values into the school and their own unique histories to the school. And that's something that should be valued across the board. Because what tends to happen in these schools is that they become reflections of the same sort of inequalities that we see in our societies, yeah, absolutely. We talk about this kind of stuff all the time. Right, right. Right. Yeah. The the way that you're going to show up and try to remake the school in your image of what a good school should and shouldn't look like. Right. And it's so easy to slide into like a deficit framework, right? When you walk into a new situation where people do things differently than you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's easy to just look at that and say, Oh, hey, wow, like this is not the right way of doing things. That's like bad parenting or those parents don't really have the same values as I do when it comes to my kid. Yeah. And then if the school has lower test scores or the PTA isn't raising $400,000 a year, like it, it's hard to look at that without, without thinking through a deficit mindset. Oh, yeah. I think a lot of parents don't go beyond uh, test scores to just look at what a good school should be. 
I mean, you really get a sense of that, especially when people are on the market for homes and you have conversations about them and they'll be like, okay, well, like, are you looking at the schools in the area or that place has a good school, that place has a bad school? And literally they'll just look at a single digit score. You know, the school is ranked either eight or nine or three or two. And that their judgment of the school is not going to go past that. So you talk about the decreased sense of risk that's associated with yes. living in urban centers. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what's allowed white and privileged families to move in, or that's one of the pieces of that. Mm-hmm. But yet with these segregated schools, there's this perceived risk, right? We're not yes. worried maybe about getting mugged as much as we are <laughs> getting into Harvard, That the risk right. of not getting into Harvard. As you said, there's this issue of perceived risk. One theory around this is that hyper-parenting or sort of aggressive involvement in one's children becomes sort of a strategy for an age of hyper-inequality where the stakes for success and for economic mobility are uh, much higher today than they were in the past, especially in the United States, where there's um, a lot of economic inequality and therefore education and schooling sort of becomes the tool to get on the winning end of the stick. So that obviously creates a whole other dynamic of how parents perceive schools and the educational opportunities um, and privileges of their own children. So I want to ask, you know, you say that the that the stakes are higher, right? For for our Yeah, kids. there's a perception of that, certainly. Is that really real? And is that real for white families in particular or families who are middle class or upper middle class? I know that there's a difference if you are a black middle class family than if you are a white middle class family. Right. I mean, it's certainly different, obviously, for for different groups of people. But I think generally speaking, um, the work on intergenerational mobility does suggest that the cohorts that have come of age in the last few decades have tended to have lower mobility rates than their parents. You know, I think economic inequality is a real thing. People also have a lot of anxiety about their own future prospects and certainly the future prospects of their children. And I think this is a very uh, real anxiety in many ways. And a lot of it is also a very context specific. Um, I think wealth is obviously very relative, right? You can see your own social positioning in, in the national context and look at it on a distribution and be like, okay, well, my social positioning is um, obviously a very privileged one. But then within your own community or within your own neighborhood context, <laughs> Um, that same social positioning might lie on the kind of other end of the distribution, more on the bottom end, especially if you live within a particular type of community. So in that sense, yeah, there is a lot of perception issues to this uh, social position anxiety. Right. So the social anxiety, the sense of perceived risk about our kids' futures, it's certainly something we talk a lot about. And I think, I think too, there's really good questions to ask around the actual impact of attending, you know, quote, elite schools. I mean, I mean, the whole narrative of exclusivity and, and higher education and, you know, the actual value of what you're paying for is something that's obviously coming under extreme attack. Um, I think, from all corners. So how long that narrative holds up, right? That narrative has been there for a while is is going to be interesting to see. Yeah. 
I'm thinking back to Thurgood Marshall's dissent in Milliken that I'm going to misquote it here. If we don't learn together, we'll never learn to live together. Mm, mm. And I think that you're saying that with gentrification, we have learned to live together. Maybe together is in quotes, right? Yes. But, but we haven't really begun to learn together. But this is really like flipping the, the script in a lot of ways, right? Like we often hear people say that we can't really address school segregation until we address residential segregation. Yeah. But, you know, here there's these gentrifying communities where white and privileged families are moving into but not sending their kids to these schools. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we ha- we have controlled for residential segregation. Right. And yet still. I mean, you know, I wouldn't go so far as saying we've necessarily learned to live together. I think that the verdict is still out. I, I think that when you're talking about this widespread gentrification that we're seeing right now, that's a very recent phenomenon, which is why I see sort of a symbiotic relationship between stabilizing these neighborhoods residentially and integrating them um, and desegregating them educationally. Um, Because fundamentally, I think that that is what will keep these neighborhoods diverse in the long term. I mean, the neighborhoods could, in theory, obviously turn in either direction. The neighborhoods could resegregate or they could become overwhelmingly, let's just say, white um, in a couple of decades. I mean, in a society where your typical American leaves every five to six years, um, neighborhoods tend to change quite rapidly. Yeah. We look at neighborhoods in a static way, but that they're always shifting and moving. Mm -hmm. But how do you think about stabilizing a gentrifying neighborhood so that it doesn't completely flip? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are there, there are a lot of things that, that can be done. I mean, I think that it depends on the neighborhood. In places like New York City, where you have high concentrations of subsidized housing that frequently is not in the best condition, I think rehabilitating subsidized housing and public housing in gentrifying neighborhoods is really important. I think uh, the other thing in encouraging development where there's a lot of demand in terms of residents moving in. So I think a lot of building is is important as well. And um, again, not just blindly building, but using tools that can at least ensure some level of integration, like inclusionary zoning. So again, having requirements for developers to have a certain amount of units within a given complex for low-income people and families. Mm-hmm. But of course, um, that number, right, of how, how many units, just for example, should be um, designated to low-income folks, that is going to be very locally dependent. A lot of that really depends on local land costs, sort of what the developer can muster in terms of the incentive for them to build. Um, because what we frequently find happening in a lot of places is that developers are not incentivized to build. Therefore, supply just becomes further and further restricted. Um, but these neighborhoods become sort of no less desirable. And Economics 101 would suggest that that is a perfect storm for just a very, very tight housing market, which becomes inaccessible to a lot of folks. I'm always thinking about how does knowing these things help me be a better neighbor, (laughs) right? Like what kind of individual choices can I make as as a white and privileged parent in a gentrifying community? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say for one, definitely think twice before you protest building in that community because you're concerned that it might change the character of the neighborhood and that whatever your concerns might be, maybe look at those uh, assumptions a little bit more closely because frequently what happens at that point is it creates a lot more harm to the people that we might think we're we're protecting uh, in the process. So that would be as far as the housing piece. And then, you know, if you are a gentrifier and you're moving into one of these neighborhoods and you see yourself investing in this neighborhood in, in, in the long run, get to know your neighbors and understand. And stop calling the cops on them. Yeah, stop calling. playing their music loud. Right, stop calling the cops on them. <laughs> yeah, have your worldview grounded in a critical framework. And understand that we all have built-in biases and it's very easy to slip into them. And it's a constant uh, work in progress. And especially when you're talking about the school level where this is really in your face because you've essentially made a decision to share a very small space with others that um, come from completely different worlds than you do. Yeah. I feel like that was a really good ending. So I'm trying to come up with something better, but I think we might have just had it. Trying to hit it with a, with a high note here. <laughs> yeah. Well, this was, this was really great. I'm, I'm super grateful to you. Absolutely. And uh, thank you, Courtney. Um, it's been great to get, get to know you. And I'm definitely on to you guys on, on social. So keep up the, the good fight and keep up the good work. Nice job, Courtney. I'm sorry I had to leave you on your own there for that one. Uh, I have to say that one of the things I've been thinking a lot about since we had this discussion with Dr. Mordecai is just the fact that neighborhoods are always changing, right? And, And that displacement happens all the time in neighborhoods with high concentrations of poverty. And I think this is something that we just don't hear a lot about in conversations around gentrification. Right, yeah, yeah, that it's... Not as overtly noticeable when families are being displaced and then you know, new families that look like them move in, but but that it's happening all the time. But I, yeah, I mean, I definitely worry that this sort of becomes a, a motivating narrative, right? Like that lets, lets white and privileged yeah. parents off the hook for the impact of their arrival into gentrifying neighborhoods. Yeah, and, and we see that happening, right? Like the white and our privileged families move in and we are not investing in the existing neighborhood community, most most specifically in schools. Yeah. Dr. Mordecai's work certainly certainly shows that. And, you know, our our neighborhoods are becoming more diverse and they're becoming more more diverse more rapidly than our schools. You know, it is happening in schools, but just not as quickly. And I think, you know, that speaks to me about this the argument we often hear that we can't fix school segregation until we fix residential segregation. I mean, I think the two are the two are clearly linked. But they're but, also distinct in many ways too, right? Right. Yes, right. Reg- residential segregation is real, and and it's real in many areas, but it's not real everywhere. But then when we don't have residential segregation, like in these gentrifying communities, we're still seeing white and or privileged families choosing not to send their kids to black and or brown schools. This is why the we have to fix residential segregation argument is so frustrating. It's just kind of – it feels to me very often like it's a pass-the-buck argument. Yeah. I mean, but, but there's plenty of work to do on residential segregation, though, right? <laughs> yeah. 
But for those of us living in gentrifying or diverse neighborhoods, are we there to appreciate diversity as is kind of a commodity? And and that's a cool thing about us, right? Because right? that's the wallpaper diversity yeah. that Dr. Mordecai was talking about. We like to have diversity almost as decoration, but but not the substance of our lives. Right. Right. And I mean, that goes for our schools too, right? Like it's not just sending our kids to schools that are quote diverse, but are actually sort of, you know, the highest concentration of white kids in the district. But, but it has to be about making choices about school that, that push back on those concentrations of poverty and privilege that, you know, work towards a goal of more integration, which means clearly means different things in different places. As you said, right? Like the goal of more integration in, uh, you know, suburban Oklahoma city can't be the same numerically as it is in downtown LA, but, you know, being part of that work is what's really important, you know, and that, and that might mean being the only white or privileged kid in, in your school. Yeah. I mean, that's right. And, and, you know, tying our faiths together and being in community, especially at school, is, I think, a really different project than moving into a community for the fancy coffee and and walkability, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. You know, if we do live in a gentrifying neighborhood and we don't send our kids to the integrating schools in these neighborhoods, you know, what would Dr. Hagerman have to say about what we are modeling as parents? Right. Throwback to episode three, right? Our, our yeah. kids pay a whole <laughs> lot more attention to what we do than what we say. Yeah. Like last night, mom, you can't be texting Andrew while we're at dinner. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> but as one of our listeners wrote a while back, and yes, we finally got to gentrification, Scott. It, in the inverse situation, right? Like if we're living, if we live in a largely white community and we send our kids to a school that's serving mostly black and or brown kids, are we expecting our kids to do the work that we ourselves aren't doing? And what does that mean? Right. Yeah. I mean, but and w- what's the impact in that, those situations that at least we're not, you know, driving up home prices and gentrifying neighborhoods? Maybe. It's like there's, there's not one way to be the perfect white person. I know we all want the manual. Yeah. <laughs> and yet. <laughs> well, it's a lot to wrestle with here. Individual choices, systemic systems, race, power, privilege. But I think we, you know, the, we have to keep in mind that we, we white and privileged people have like a, a privileged footprint, right? And so the yeah. question is how, how do we minimize how much of that footprint ends up stepping on other people? Yeah. And this is something of a side note, but I think it's also important to talk just for a second about the the framework of supporting our local schools, quote unquote. And, you know, we hear that a lot from white folks in gentrifying communities. Right. Yeah. I mean, this, this is like one of those things that white people seem to either really love or not, depending on whether it makes our schools more or less segregated. Right. Like in yeah. a white affluent community, it's the rallying cry against desegregation efforts. Right. Like but then in gentrifying communities, it can often be the rallying cry for sort of newly arrived white and privileged people to come and take over an existing school. Like, you know, we don't have to drive our kids to the private school on the other side of town if we all just walk to the neighborhood school we can quote make it good you know and we we end up talking about walkability but not actually talking about integration yeah so we're talking about desegregation using neighborhood schools and gentrifying communities but this doesn't really set us up for talking about meaningful integration and if we aren't talking about integration we're just not talking about integration right and here's another thing and it's probably not the right time to talk about this and i really probably need to think through this a bit more. But I've been thinking a lot lately about how, quote, diversity feels like the new colorblindness. And maybe we we need to stop throwing the term diversity around so wantonly. Hmm. That's interesting. Like it like if we if we stop at diversity, 
we don't get to inclusion or integration. Yeah. Right. And that like that's where Dr. Mordecai was saying too. Right. Like gentrification can be really destructive if it's just for the quote diversity and doesn't actually get to the inclusion or the integration. Yeah. I think you know being a good neighbor is not just moving in and replicating our ideas of what a neighborhood should be or or what a school should be. Right. So desegregation is being there, but integration is showing up in a way that puts the onus on us white and or privileged families to do the work of building trust in a community. Being a good neighbor. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot to wrestle with. You know, I, I think it, you know, it comes down to being reflective about the impact of our choices for, for where we live and where we send our kids to school because uh, it's all related. Yeah. But we can dig in deeper over on the Patreon forums. Mm-hmm. Patreon.com slash integrated schools. Support this all volunteer effort and let us know what you think. And for our next episode, we will be talking with Dr. Jessica Calarco on intensive parenting and school segregation. Mm. And I am I'm really looking forward to this episode. Yeah, me too. That was a great conversation with Dr. Calarco. So let us know what you think. What topics should we be covering? What are you struggling with? Send us an email. Hello at integratedschools.org. Join us on social media at Integrated Schools or on our website, integratedschools.org. And as always, we are grateful to be in this with you as we try to know better and do better. See you next time. Bye.